Today, I am joined by Jay Burden. He is um, a fellow podcaster, a fellow chronicler of the dissident right, but someone that operates kind of, I feel like, on a, on a level deeper than I do. Uh, he interviews, at least up to this point, um, medium, sometimes small influencers in the space. He's very knowledgeable about the space. He's essentially, you know, when people ask me, uh, okay, you know, where do you find all these people? Uh, you, where do you know about this stuff? I source from people like Jay Burton and uh, I get information and, you know, I just, I really like his podcast. That's number one. I've also been on his podcast. I link that in the, in the show notes, if anyone wants to check that out. And uh, yeah, I feel like he's um, a very articulate up and coming voice here. And uh, he's also someone who is distinguished by the fact that he is of a different generation. He is a zoomer, which at, at first glance or at first listen to a show, I didn't realize, but then it kind of comes up in the discussion. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to chat to him because of that as well, because we're sharing the space. We're both interested in similar types of conversations, similar types of people, but he is a young man living in the US uh, and I am now a slightly middle-aged woman living in Romania. And I feel like this could be a productive conversation. So welcome, Jay Burden. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Alex. It was a very kind intro. Uh, thank you. I'm 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 glad you've come on, and I'm glad I've been on your show. And since then, I've listened to quite a few episodes. And you have a a, a knack for picking talent as well. I mean, um, I really wasn't aware of a lot of the people um, that you have on your show before they came on your show. And there's quite you know there's quite a lot of really good conversations there. So I want to point people to uh, to the show. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess probably the best intro to this would be, you know, kind of what's your story? How did you end up in these waters? What about it is interesting to you? Well, sure. I, I would like to say at the very beginning that while, while I am a, a zoomer, I'm on the, the older end of that generation, right? I'm 24 years old and I am kind of straddling that line. So for instance, right, uh, Gen Z also known as you know the digital natives, right, are kind of associated with smartphones, you know, with 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 you know easily accessible kind of web 3.0 technology. And while that's certainly something that has you know deeply shaped my life, I remember a time before that. You know, I I, I not great memories, but I remember when I was I think I was eight or nine years old when my dad came home with a smartphone. It was a big thing. And so obviously, you know, as within any age cohort, there's going to be differences. And so I think that, you know, when people say the Zoomer, you know, you get the image in your mind, right, of the guy with the perm, you know, bussin', bussin' for real, kind of things <laughs> like that, right? And while that's certainly a, a culture that I probably have, you know, more familiarity with, I'm not going to, you know, misrepresent myself. So uh, to introduce kind of, you know, my work and, you know, how I got here, I, I was lucky enough to, to be part of uh, what's called the Christian classical movement in the US. And this essentially is a, a, group of religious schools that kind of sprang up in the 90s that were basically a response to, all right, American education has a number of problems, which, you know, if you're in this sphere, you're undoubtedly familiar with. And when we look at Christian schools, they're not particularly academic, right? As, as far as I understand, there's actually a lot of kind of like a Baptist uh, evangelical Christian schools in Romania, correct? Yes. There's also a lot of those in the US. And while there's certainly, you know, there's higher discipline standards, they're not particularly academic, at least in the US in many cases. And so this was a response basically saying, like, all right, like we as you know, Western Christians have this rich 
depth of material to pull from and no one's going towards it. So for instance, uh, if you've heard of the trivium, right? Grammar, rhetoric, logic, that was the basis of my school. And so I was very lucky to be kind of raised in these waters. And through that, I actually met a a friend of mine who is now a guest on my show. He, he goes under George Bagby. And he was essentially, he was a, a literature and history teacher there. And he is kind of a, a long time, kind of like denizen of these circles. He was at Abbeville. He was a uh, mold bug reader when he was still you know, producing and, you know, in the, in the mid two thousands. And so because of that, he basically was like, all right, you know, the, you're, you're interested in this. You actually care. You know, you're not just here because your parents are making you, you should read this. You should read that. And so from a very young age, he was kind of giving me like, oh, Hey, like, you know, read Moldbuck. Oh, you should read, you know, kind of the, the people in the, you know, what we consider like the dissonant tradition, you know, we have figures like, you know, Rothbart, Sam Francis kind of more associated with, you know, kind of an older version of, you know, our movement. And so I, in that milieu, there were a whole bunch of people, you know, there are people you would consider kind of paleo cons, you know, more right wing generally. And so I had access, you know, due to really like, you know, no, like no skill of my own to a deep well of sources. And so like a lot of people, right, I kind of went through a very, you know, typical rabbit hole in the sense that like, well, I started out as, you know, I'm in, in the American South as kind of a, a normal conservative. And you know, I remember the Trump era. I, I couldn't vote, but I remember that energy. And just by virtue of the fact that I, th I think almost everyone, if you've made it this far, you're kind of a disagreeable person, right? You don't like doing what's, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of led to. And despite being raised in a very kind of traditional and conservative circle, I was like, ah, I know better. You know, I'm not going to do what I'm told. And that basically continued up until my, my freshman year of college. And I was in college, not in the same area directly, but in close proximity to starting my freshman year, the Charlottesville riot. So I, I, not in Charlottesville, but in that, you know, within about, let's just say a 200 mile radius, right? And I went to, a, at the time, a small prestigious liberal arts school. And I just got completely rocked. Like they, they brought us in, and this was even before the, the rally happened, but they brought us in to this room and all, I think there were, you know, a couple hundred men who were starting as freshmen. And they had us show up a week before classes start. And it was like something out of like, you know, a, a, it was like a stereotype. Then this, you know, this big old lady with blue hair and, and, a, and kind of problem glasses shows up on the stage. And for the next week, right, I'm basically told like, you know, you look to your left, look to your right. One of those men is a rapist, you know, things like that. And you're like, what the, like, what in the world? And so that completely just like knocked me flat. Like I was in no way prepared for that because while I had been in, shall we say, like an academic Christian conservative setting and within that people are like, Hey, look, like this isn't the real world, you know? I kind of expected, well, everyone's, everyone's a gentleman, you know, everyone's playing by the same rules. This is a dialogue. And I got there and I was like, well, what, what in the world? Well, the, the story that I like using is, you know, as part of this, my, my freshman year at the school, which I, I should clarify, I did, I did end up, I did drop out, finish my degree somewhere else. The, I, I had to take a, a freshman seminar, which essentially is a, a class you take on a specific topic you're interested in that basically prepares you to be an academic writer. It's essentially a research class. And, and I was in, in business school and I saw game theory and I thought, oh, game theory, right? That's like uh, you know economic game theory. That might be useful to what I want to study. And little did I know, I was in a class that was basically critical theory of video games. So essentially, <laughs> yeah, I, I took a 
and I should add, very expensive college class on Gamergate. So while I was not involved in Gamergate, I was taught it in an academic setting. And so I kind of, in a weird way, people are like, oh, have you been here since Gamergate? I'm like, well, not really, but also kind of. <laughs> you know, and I see that you're laughing because it is, it is absurd, right? That, that truly Gamergate is, is, is Vietnam you know, for, for millennial progressives. And so going through that, I basically was like, I hate these people. And the whole time it's like, don't you dare watch XYZ. You know, they're the kind of figures associated with that. And I was like, well, don't dare watch who again? Like, where's their YouTube channel? And so I, I kind of slowly, you know, made my way through, you know, the, the same track that a lot of people did. And the jumping over point for me was plus or minus a little bit before COVID. And it's actually a, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Aaron McIntyre. And George Bagby, you know, a sometime co-host of mine had found RN when he was very, very small. Because again, he's been in these spheres for a long time. And he sent me that. And to me, that was what kind of got me over the hump. Because while I, I certainly take a lot from Moldbug, he can be a little bit tough to get through. And he has a tone to him that can some people can find rubs them the wrong way. And for me, you know, people like Aaron McIntyre and your show is basically like, okay, I can now make this cohesive. I can make kind of a more political realist framework mesh with you know, kind of my more existential beliefs. And so it's a long story short to say that eventually I, I, you know, got further and further into these spheres. And honestly, I, I started this podcast in, in no small part inspired by, by your own podcast, because I had a conversation with uh, another young guy in, in, you know, the, the dissident spheres, Paul Fahrenheit. He's a writer, you know, he's a, he's a poet, he has a, you know, an interesting series of, uh, you know, fiction that's out right now. And we had a great conversation. We talked for four hours and he's like, you know what? Like, you know how to speak. You should do something with this. And so I was like, well, all right. Like, I feel like I, that's a pretty, like, that's a, that's a sign. I should do something. I looked around and I was like, well, okay, I'm an okay writer. There's a lot of people writing. So do I want to become like the 10th new Substack this week? Or do I say like, okay, well, I've always, I've always been good at public speaking. I've always been good at, you know, meeting people. Like I can probably do that. And so that's what I've been doing for a little over a year now. I think I'm up to 112 numbered episodes, you know, and it's been a lot of fun and it's genuinely something I've, I've found invaluable. It's the most fun hobby I've ever had. And uh, I think the thing that attracts me to, to go back to it is that there was this feeling that I felt in both kind of uh, American evangelical conservative circles and in kind of the university left of just feeling like these aren't real discussions. You know, this isn't a real idea. We are rehashing essentially a culture war that happened before my parents were born. You know, like this isn't this isn't interesting. And so that same feeling that I loved in in school of you know reading classical authors, reading this kind of like getting into this like rich academic substrate where it's like, oh, there's something here to sink your teeth into. And as I'm sure you know, there are, this is the place to be if you're interested in ideas. And if you're interested in getting past the kind of platitudes of, you know, socialism destroyed compilation three, you know, where it just effectively is, is like a, like it's really no different from, you know, like WWE or, you know, American football, right? To actually like looking at something that is you know real and interesting and can inform the way you live your life, and so that's why I enjoy talking to people. And so yeah, that's that's a long way to kind of describe how I got here, but you know that's how I ended up with the podcast. 
Yeah, and it's uh, you're you're also extremely prolific. I remember when I when I came on your show, you had recorded I don't know for a week or maybe even <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah, that that was something I could do uh, before I got married and before I got a job. So I, I was working at the time. I was working early shift at a factory, you know, which means that I would I'd show up to work at four in the morning. And obviously, you know, you, you can even work a you know eight or ten hour shift. And by the time you're done, well, it's like all right, none of my friends get off work for a couple hours and. I'm not just going to sit around. So it's like, all right, like let's record four times a week. So I got the time. And, and that was yeah. definitely good. Uh, I'd like to say that because I have more time, my, my individual episodes are better. You know, there's more of me to give. Uh, that's probably, I, I shouldn't say that about myself, but I'd like to imagine that's what happened now that I've, you know, gone back to a more sensible, you know, episode a week schedule. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously you have that kind of early twenties energy, which I, you know, uh, I wish I, I had at the moment. And, uh, now I'm at the point where, you know, I, I, this is probably one of the last like late afternoon, evening episodes that I can do because I'm just beat at the end of the day now. So I wake up at like 530 because that's obviously when toddler wakes up. It's not very negotiable here. And I am extremely pregnant and I'm sleepy, but uh, I'm still soldiering on because I want to, you know, have a little bit of continuity for the show. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it, it does take it out of you, especially, I mean, for me, it's because it's my second language as well. I kind of feel like I need to dig deep to, you know, express myself and it's just, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, surprisingly energy intensive, the podcasting business, which no, I guess, you know, I, I know what you mean. I did a, I did a benefit stream, right. When a, when a, a friend of mine got, got canceled and, uh, I recorded, I decided like, you know what, I'll go for eight hours with a rotating panel of just who wants to drop in. And I knew it was going to be rough. Like I knew like, oh, that's, that's going to be hard. But by the end of it, I was incoherent. You know, I, like it, it, I, I basically, I probably lost conservatively 30 IQ points over the course of the stream. <laughs> and so by the end of it, it was just like, well, you know, you're, you're listening to a man fall apart on air, which I guess some people enjoyed, but yeah, no, I, it, is, <laughs> it is harder than you'd imagine to speak at, you know, at length and especially about, you know, like, genuinely intense topics. You know, it's not like you and I are discussing, you know, celebrity gossip in the top 40. It's like, well, why is it important that you suffer? You know, and it's like, oh, wow, like that, that kind of takes it out of you. And so, uh, yeah, no, I, I have sympathy and uh, I, I, I'll put it this way. I would not have known, you know, you were as tired unless you told me. So I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, re returning to the main theme of the of the show, so I don't continue complaining about being tired. <laughs> I think that's that, that interesting to, to listeners. Um, I, I, I wonder kind of, you know, because you were describing this this essential deadness of the the core culture and what attracts people to this space, what attracts smart people to the space as well, because that's kind of the same beacon that I've seen. Uh, the fact that the only real conversations are happening here. Obviously, not every conversation happening here is real, and not everything is profound and wonderful. And you know, there's there's also because the space has gotten bigger, it's, it has attracted a little bit of let's you know, debris or something like that. There, there's some marginal conversations that are a bit nutty. Um, but I, I, I wonder what, um, how you see this space affecting the people around you. I mean, you said you're in the South, I guess it's probably more, more interesting maybe to people who already kind of have a conservative bent, but, um, in terms of the percentage of people that you've maybe grown up with, like how, how many of them would be interested in this, could be interested in this, do have the interest you know, bandwidth to deal with these ideas. You know, I, I, what I see in my, in my sphere is that, um, 
a lot of people would have the capacity to deal with this, but they're not just not interested. They really are kind of, you know, I just want to grill type people. And until, you know, the, the, the city is on fire, they won't really react like the, they could, the, the frog could be boiling for a very long time until they, they twitch a little bit. So I wonder what, what your feeling is like, how, how is your generation, the people around you reacting to, to this stuff? So it's an interesting point, right? So I should say, obviously, I live in a, a much more conservative area than average. And so what I will say, and I'll use my, my high school graduating class as an example, because it's a nice round number. I graduated with 30 people, small school. Of that, I would say there are probably one in 10, three or four, who are you know, just as far down the rabbit hole as you and I are. So basically, you know, the kind of people who are, you know, reading Dostoevsky, the kind of people who are sitting, like sitting there asking, you know, these, these kind of like deep questions of like, wh- why are we like this? You know, uh, some of whom will uh, no doubt listen to this episode. And on the other hand, I'd say there's a, there's the next layer of the onion, which is kind of wh- why did the SJWs ruin my XYZ? You know, they're the kind of people who are very, very angry about, you know, kind of cultural issues, you know, uh, it, People who are, you know, boycotting Target. People who are, you know, very upset at Bud Light. And obviously, I know you said this episode will air in the future. What I mean is kind of like current culture war issues. You know, the thing that, you know, people like, you know, Glenn Beck and they will tell you to be mad about, right? And that's another layer. People who are interested in politics aren't necessarily kind of like, you know, going down to the deeper issues of, well, wait a minute. There's there's kind of more questions to be asked than just, you know, like I'm angry. And then I would say probably the vast majority, and I want to say let's let's go to half. That is just you know apolitical, normal people. And I don't think that's a terrible thing, to be honest. I think that people like you and I, to be honest, the fewer of us around, the better. <laughs> you know? and, and I mean that genuinely, where it's like most people, this this these aren't things that most people should really be thinking about. And I think that it's kind of a sign of how bad things have gotten that the as more and more has kind of come up for debate culturally, right? When it comes to, you know, sexual values, when it comes to kind of, you know, any one number of issues, it's gone from being what I would consider assumed morality, right? Which, okay, even if every person wasn't, you know, kind of ultimately Christian, you know, in kind of the the salvific sense, pretty much, you know, it was Christmas, Easter, you know, everyone was like, all right, okay, if you have an affair, that's a shameful thing. Even if you do it, you don't broadcast it. You know, that was kind of a, a level of cultural Christianity. And I'm still in an area where that still exists, kind of. You know, it's fading away. I think that that's probably the natural mode of most people. And so when I, I, I it's interesting what you said about, you know, the, 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 in some ways, the, the conversation in these spheres is getting worse. And I think part of that is that it's getting bigger. And there's two things within that, which is one, there's only there's only so many kind of what I would consider like you know hyper intelligent dissidents around you know and after a certain point it's just people who are angry you know and you can be angry for either legitimate or illegitimate reasons you know and I think that a lot of the the kind of chaff we see is basically kind of social malcontents you know and and there's a friend of mine Black Horse who's a, a Canadian. I recommend his, you know, his work a lot. He's, he speaks oftentimes with uh, Stephen Carson, also known as Radical Liberation. And, and Black Horse said this very well, where he's like, look, like, I shouldn't be a dissident. You know, I went to a Canadian Ivy. I work in, you know, high finance. I, you know, I should be 
pillar of the system. And I think that even if you're not a pillar, even if you're, you're, you're someone like me or you know, some of the listeners, right? Who are like, well, okay, like, I'll be honest, I'm not Ivy League material, even in the best of times. You know, you're like, well, I should be sucked in. You know, I shouldn't be looking around and saying like, well, I have n- the system can offer me nothing. You know, it is, does nothing other than essentially insult me and my values. And I think that, that that continues down to more normal people where even if it's not, you know, explicated very neatly, like, the, you know, that, you know, that my government hates me because of, you know, X, Y, Z, the kind of like academic reason that maybe, you know, you or I or, you know, any one of your guests could give. But there is this kind of feeling of hostility, like these people aren't, like these aren't my people, you know, and, and just kind of the most like, and I don't mean simple as in stupid, but I mean simple as in kind of like, it, I think for many people, it's that, it's that feeling. And I think one of the things that, you know, is drawing people to these spheres is, is something that you may or may not have experienced, which is basically the feeling that there's no way to be a smart person and on the right. You know, I, I remember, you know, kind of growing up in the George Bush era. You know, I, I remember very, you know, very well, you know, Obama's first and second elections. And the tone that, you know, kind of like, shall we say, like establishment media, the tone that even, you know, right wing, you know, red America media took was basically to be, to be intelligent, to care. That's a liberal thing. And if, you know, you're sitting there, right? And you're like, well, I care. You know, like I want to read. Does that make me by default, you know, a liberal? Does that make me by fault, default a, a progressive? And I think that one of the things that's pulling people and especially pulling the best people, like the people you want, is that that glimmer of hope that like, wait a minute, I don't have to go along with the system that hates me. You know, I can still, I can do something dignified. You know, I, I don't have to kowtow because of my, you know, my, my sexual, my sexuality, my, my religious views, you know, my, my, my commitments in life. I don't have to be a second class citizen in order to be smart. I don't have to, I can do both. You know, I can, I can read that there's more to, you know, that there's more to the right wing than Bill O'Reilly. There's more to the right wing than, you know, kind of, you know, team America. And I think that that's what's pulling people because I think that it's become harder and harder. And I, I say this as a recent college graduate, it's been harder and harder for essentially young white guys not to notice. You know, and obviously, you know, affirmative action has been very real in America for a long time. But it was easy to be, you know, non-politicized. I think of someone, you know, like like my father, right, who's who's Gen X, you know, is a, a kind of like confident, normal man. And for him, it was very easy to go through, you know, to go through higher education, to go through the workplace as a normal person. You know, it wasn't like he had anything to be, you know, quote unquote, ashamed of. And I think that what we we've seen is that basically, you know, stories like mine at university and as exaggerated as that is, are becoming more and more common. And the signal that is sending, and it happened, you know, I almost I almost got kicked out of you know school for COVID. Like all of these things are basically signaling, you know, you're not welcome here. And I think that when you're not welcome, you basically look around and you're like, okay, well, where can I be? Where am I allowed to be? And I think that this is a, a, a receiving, like it's a catcher's mitt for those type of people, you know. And obviously, you know, some people get stuck at the, the Joe Rogan level. Some people get stuck at the, you know, the Daily Wire level. But the people who you want, 
right? The smart people, the people interested in asking, you know, why, wait, is there more to this, you know, these set of beliefs than just, you know, a Candace Owens book and, you know, a, you know, something, you know, like a, a 30 second, you know, TikTok compilation of SJWs destroyed. Well, those people are going to find it here. And that's sort of why I like, you know, your podcast and what I hope to be as well is essentially like a landing pad for new people. Like, hey, well, okay, like who should I listen to? Who should I be reading? You know, who are people that have, you know, interesting ideas? Because, and I think that this is a, a religious, sincerely held religious conviction of mine, right? That obviously, you know, like you and I would both hold this, you know, some variety of, you know, small or orthodox Christian, right? That there are ideas, you know, which your belief can determine kind of the ultimate fate of your soul. And if you take that up a few layers to like, all right, well, you know, these ideas matter, you know, these ideas will produce, you know, radically different results in my life and you know, the life of my community. Well, then the kind of like weak gruel of, you know, mainstream conservatism just isn't enough. And look, I'm not a populist. I'm not saying, you know, super, you know, super plus Republicans, right? Like the ultra based ones that are really out there. Like we need 50 plus 1% of those people. I don't believe that. You know, I, I'm firmly in kind of like the elitist camp in that sense. But also, right, we have the advantage that every one of these people, you know, like me, like any number of kind of the young guys joining this circle, it essentially is a zero sum game. They are leaving the regime and coming here. And if we believe, right, in the idea of like a counter elite, you know, of dissatisfied, competent people who essentially have nowhere to go, you know, there's no, there's really very little option for me to join the regime. You know, and then the capacity that I would like to, or I, I hypothetically would like to, of course. I, I think that that is a you know a tide which which benefits us. So that that's a very long winded answer, Alex. I hope I I got your question. No, absolutely. I think you know that's that's kind of one stream of uh, of what's coming in. Um, but for me, I mean, I'm my situation is, is quite different. I'm a a woman. I'm an immigrant. At least I was an immigrant to the West. You know, I got lots of kind of offers of, uh, you know, participating in all sorts of programs. And I was invited into the regime in a, in a very explicit way. Uh, even, um, you know, my, my major in college was diversity management. So I was very much, you know, kind of already built up to be part of the, the blue haired class. Um, but, you know, what, what it was for me, it wasn't the the fact that, you know, I was rejected or there was no place for me. There was clearly a place for me. It was all nice and cushy and everyone wanted me there. Uh, but it was repellently dumb. I feel like people don't realize how, you know, like, like you said, you know, I, I hate these people and you don't just hate them because they hate you. I think that's just a component. Uh, you hate them because they're spouting platitudes. They're um, jockeying for status uh, with ideas that, you know, are empty. They don't mean anything. They don't represent anything real in, you know, in, in base reality where, where things actually count. Um, and yeah, I think that, that was such a, such an important thing for me. I just, I didn't want to be part of their club. So I looked for a different club. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think there, there are multiple kind of force vectors pushing people into this direction. I feel like the disgust is, is an important one as well. No, definitely. And, and I think that Obviously, especially for young men, there's kind of a trap of media analysis, right? That if you go to, you know, kind of certain circles of the web, you could find lots and lots of people essentially complaining all day about kind of like, you know, legacy science fiction franchises, right? Like, oh, you know, the SJWs ruined, you know, insert, you know, like Star Wars, Star Trek, anything that was kind of traditionally, you know, associated with kind of like nerd culture. 
And fair enough, maybe that's that's true. But there, there's kind of two ways to go from that, which is one, I want better propaganda, which is you know, a place that a lot of people go. I would argue it's probably not the best use of your time. But on the other end, there's the realization that like, wait a minute, this is bad. You know, this is, it's like you said, it's repellent, it's stupid, and I don't want to be a part of your club. And so coming from that, the answer is, well, like, okay, like there is some kind of truth. You know, there's some kind of interesting theme in in these kind of, you know, works of, of pop culture, right? That's the part that kind of grabs your brain. You know, but if, if you essentially get people and you're like, wait, 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 you, that instinct is in you for a good reason, right? That instinct for narrative, that instinct for kind of a grand tradition, like that's worth your time. That's in you you know, to, to make you better. And look, look over there. There it is. You know, kind of bringing people back to, you know, this, what, again, I was lucky enough to, to learn in school, right? The, the, the Western canon. And, and so, you know, there's obviously there's lesser and, and more, you know, kind of like approachable parts of the canon, but essentially looking at, you know, kind of the, the most readily available, you know, I guess like uh, media expressions with a certain amount of disgust is incredibly valuable. Right, because obviously the first order of that is what you've described. Is that kind of just like curled upper lip, like like I don't like you. This this pushes me away. But the advantage, right, is that the the substitute for that is not you know a slightly more palatable you know like bowl of gruel, right? Like it's actually wait, there's a meal. It's it's out there for you. And so I think that that is you know that is attractive to the kind of people you want to attract, right? And look, like I'm no. I, I'm not necessarily naive enough to assume, again, that it'll it'll work on everyone. You know, everyone will say like, "Yes, I want to choose something that's you know, on one hand, less palatable, right? It requires more of me, but offers more on the back end." My my contention is simply that you know, like, look, like we don't need everyone, but you know, if one team basically says like, "All right, like we don't want talent," and the other side says, "Well, hey, like, like." You know, welcome home. You know, here's a way to get better. Here's a way to become more competent. Here's a way to kind of you know use your gifts based off of should we say like better software. It's like, well, look, like I, I'm very black pilled in the kind of like medium to short term. You know, like I, I have no faith that these people will ever take their foot off the gas. You know, we're kind of driving into something. But when it comes to kind of you know like past a you know maybe like a generation or so, it's like, well, look, like we are undergoing you know kind of a series of you know dramatic demographic transformations in the West. Obviously, some of that I would characterize as rather negative, you know, but I think we have to we have to look at within the kind of legacy populations of these countries uh, what is happening. And essentially, you know, the, the the liberal progressive mind has basically moved away from reproduction as a whole. And and the move and the move has gone towards well we'll just steal them. You know, we'll we'll, we'll take your kids red America, you know, and turn them into gender communists. And Obviously, that works to a certain number of people, right? But they're essentially it's a losing it's a losing numbers game. And so, uh, to me, the the way that I view kind of the, the the preference cascade trap that we're stuck in, right, is a analogy I, I stole from a friend of mine, and I quite like it. Where he basically calls it, you know, a genetic bottleneck, right? That this is a a test for humans, roughly on a similar level to the to the Black Plague. Right, and obviously, you know, there aren't people dropping dead in the street because of a you know a rat-borne virus. You know, people are just dropping in the street of you know fentanyl overdoses. But you know, the point stands, and so he's basically, and this is again my my friend Blackhorse, who I've cited once or twice already, is he's like, look, like this is a test. 
you know, and, but it is not a test for a physical virus. It's a test for a mind virus. You know, that mind virus is essentially this kind of like awful, you know, like atomized individualism, you know, this kind of like awful you know, state religion we're currently seeing. And so to me, right, I think that there is a little bit of, of hope in that. You know, it's by no means easy. It's by no means perfect. And uh, look, y- you can cause an awful lot of damage before reality catches up with you. But there is a certain sense in which I would argue that, you know, gravity and entropy are, are kind of on our side here, if you see what I'm getting at. Yes, I think I, I completely agree with that. And I've this is kind of the point I've made a few times in the, in the last few episodes that I recorded. Um, because, yeah, obviously I'm not, you know, a, a fan of electoral politics. I don't really think that uh, the future lies there. But there is, it's, it's almost um, impossible not to notice that the actual substrate of society is disintegrating in so many ways. And it is a direct consequence of the, the, the mainline religion that, that everyone's now supposed to practice um, because it's not aligned with humanity. It's not aligned with uh, a future. It's not aligned with any worthwhile values. And um, that misalignment will have to give somewhere. And I feel like, you know, there's probably going to be planes falling out of the sky, bridges crumbling, uh, you know, some terrible, terrible things will happen uh, pretty much at the scale of a, a biblical plague. Um, but Eventually, things will have to settle um, into whoever is going to uh, inherit the future. And I guess that'll be, you know, the people who actually decide to show up. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's an inevitability to be white-pilled in the, in the, in the long run. Uh, but I just don't, the, the sad thing about it is that, you know, the, the slump at best or the chaos or the disaster will happen in my children's lifetime. No, Very no, probably, definitely, and to me, I think that the the most like one of the most interesting questions, right, is essentially like who are the next people to jump ship from kind of you know the rainbow coalition in a sense, right? That the future kind of put forward by shall we say like Obama era millennial progressives is basically an alliance of everyone versus straight white guys. And so obviously, you know, straight white guys look at that and they're like, well, I'm not going along with that. But what we've, I think has been interesting to watch is seeing kind of who counts, you know, and, and I think that, you know, with terms like, you know, menstruator and, you know, you know, like egg haver going around, I'm kind of curious to what will happen to, should we say like white women more broadly? Because one of the things that has been genuinely interesting among people of, you know, my age group is that the, the war between the sexes is, is, is raging and it is expressed extremely in political affiliation. So uh, Zoomer women are dramatically to the left of, of, you know, Gen Z men. And I've noticed that with my friends, I've, you know, have a, an, any number of friends who are basically having a, a really a, a tough time dating because as you can imagine, the kind of people I hang out with, uh, you know, kind of Instagram progressivism uh, that doesn't mix too well, right? And it, it's, I won't say ubiquitous, but even in a relatively, you know, conservative area of red America, right? It, w- women are still, at least in some form, a progressive client class. Now, I don't think that's sustainable, right? I think that that kind of, uh, and I, I don't want to take too much glee in this, right? But it's pretty easy to see 
you know, the, the millennials who are, you know, your age to, to slightly older now, right. Who bought in, you know, who didn't, who became a kind of like blue haired, you know, class. And to be honest, those people are miserable, genuinely miserable. And I, I don't necessarily know, I'm not again, like a big people power person, you know, that, that like, oh, people are going to wake up, you know, it'd be the conservative revolution. But I just look at that and I say, well, that's not, to me, that just seems like a miserable existence, you know? And I think that as the kind of like easy email jobs, you know, as the kind of like cheap money that has kind of buoyed this trend to the last, should we say like 10-ish years, I think that as that goes away, the, the calculus kind of changes. Because when it goes from being a 100K email job to like a 45K email job, right? Like how much can you buy for your cat on 40 grand a year, right? And that, that becomes more and more, you know, immiserated. And so I think that one of the things that will benefit Zoomers, and look, I view Zoomers as very much children of the ashes. Like I have no memory, memory of the world pre 9-11. I have only a slight memory of the world pre-Ferguson, right? I mean, I do, but you know what I mean in kind of like the active political sense. One of the advantages is that the makeup kind of rubbed off of liberalism a while back. You know, like if, if it's the dot-com boom, right? Everyone's making money hand over fist, you know, line go up forever. You know, it, there's something of this feeling of it's like, okay, well, why do we need, why does this matter? You know, like we can all get, we can all get richer. We can buy new stuff. You know, consumerism can kind of buoy you over it. And look, like I realize obviously, you know, with each kind of successive generation, you know, American consumerism, you've kind of got less for your dollar. I get that. That's not my point. But I would argue at the point where now, and I know this because I work in you know, financial services, right? That almost every person I talk to under 30 basically says, I'll never own a house and I won't ever get any kind of government money. Like it's done. The money's all used up. And I think that, okay, maybe some people look at that as kind of a hedonistic thing. Like, okay, well, let's just, you know, you know I'll, I'll you know, chop my penis off and, you know, become a, you know, a demi queer or whatever. But I think that for the vast majority of people, it's like, well, what's an alternative, right? Is there another way to live? Because this is making everyone miserable. And I think that, you know, in a weird way, right? I'm by no means an accelerationist, but in a weird way, getting everything getting worse is kind of, it's kind of better for people, you know, because that kind of, and you, I've used, I've stolen your phrase, preference cascade, right? That idea of just doing the easiest thing and how that, that turns you essentially into this like horrible monster. You know, this like horrible atomized, you know, monster sitting in your, you know, sitting in your 750 square foot studio apartment with like an endless variety of, you know, Uber Eats and, and, and porn. And I, I, that's as that becomes less and less of a possibility, kind of you will be forced to interact with reality. And I don't know, I, maybe I'm, I'm rambling here, but uh, that's sort of the, the, the feeling I get. Yeah, so I think that's, you know, eventually that something something will have to give because like you said, you know, the it's it's unsustainable both in terms of the ideology and the values that it cultivates and the the financials. I mean, people have been eating off the seed corn for a very long time. Uh and then, you know, you have the West seed corn, but then essentially as part of the the core ideology of the West is that we should let everyone else eat the seed corn too. So Y'all come in, eat the, step up to the table and continue eating the corn. And that accelerates, you know, like Adam Smith said that there's a lot of ruin in a nation, but man, is there a lot of ruin when you open up the gates to your nations and let in everyone else who 
essentially have lived in ruins since time immemorial. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be definitely accelerationist in in many ways. And um, one of the things I think that's interesting, right, is that if you look up, you know, my generation, Gen Z, uh, most of the things you see are essentially, you know, like Gen Z is is very diverse and Gen Z is is very gay. And I mean that in both a derogatory sense and a, and a descriptive sense. <laughs> and I, I think that essentially there, there's kind of two layers of that, right? Which is essentially the, the, the programming, right? Pushed through, you know, that the way to be high status is to be uh, not straight, not white, and not Christian, right? Those are, those are low status things. So in order to kind of advance yourself, you have to, to move away from that. Again, the, the problem is that that status depends on a kind of a uh, a pause from reality, right? That that is an inversion of you know what would have been a kind of traditional social hierarchy, and that inversion takes energy. You know, it's not a passive thing. Is that there needs to be you know a thumb on every scale. There needs to be you know kind of like a, a department everywhere making sure that if that that that, that inversion doesn't carry on. You know, then the hammer of of the Justice Department will fall on you, you know, like a like a bolt of lightning from the sky. And I think that as the the regime, you know, as things start to regime power starts to shrink, right? And obviously, as you would expect, right, it kind of shrinks at the periphery first. You know, like okay, maybe maybe you can't hold on to you know your most far far flung provinces, and I guess maybe now Brazil is hanging out with our enemies. We don't like that, and you know maybe we're kind of losing hold of you know, the most far-flung military bases, that the ability to kind of enforce that inverted status hierarchy is going to shift. And I, I sort of think that, you know, places, you know, like in a weird way, you know, the, the most far-flung, you know, parts of the empire will kind of get the benefit first, you know, and unfortunately I live rather close to the heart of it. And so it, it who knows, you know, there might still be a, you know, a Roman empire and, you know, a Roman emperor rather in, in six or 700, right? And it's a little bit ridiculous, but you know, the empire is still living on even in, you know, kind of a small form. And so what I think is that the, uh, my thesis is, I guess, that, you know, people of my generation are reacting to uh, status signals, right? And so, you know, many of these behaviors that they exhibit are rational from a certain perspective, right? Like this will advance me, this will kind of like push me forward. And I think that, you know, viewing, you know, I think it's believed it's like 21 or 22% of, of Gen Z is, is homosexual is, I don't buy that. To me, that is 20 to 20 some percent of people who are status conscious, you know? And so if you essentially have a way to say like, all right, you know, like, I, I, I guess Chris Hemsworth is kind of hot, so I'm bisexual maybe, you know, or like, I think I kissed a girl at a party once, so I guess I'm a lesbian. I think that that will kind of go away as quickly as there is status to be gained from it. You know, I think that if we can take one thing from economics, right, it's that people are kind of, you know, rational actors, you know, moving in a system of scarcity. And I think that, you know, once that once incentives change, you know, people will you know, kind of like shortly, you know, follow suit. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I feel like, um, you know, this is kind of going back to, to what you were saying that, you know, women diverged from men quite quickly, uh, especially in Gen Z. And I feel like people, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, the effects of social media, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a big talk about, but I feel it's, it's very hard to comprehend how much of a cultural force it's been, especially with young women 
um, you know, like you said, in Instagram progressivism, like the, the, just the, the, the image based status based, uh, proliferation of whatever Occupy Democrats type graphs plugged into like natural empathy and, uh, you know, the instinct to be a little bit more conformist and agreeable than, than your average guy and to, you know, kind of, kind of project that and promote that. And I mean, I feel like that's, it's been literally cascading effects, you know, from, from influencers. Like I remember like any sort of current thing, you know, cause I obviously, being a woman, I follow my mommy bloggers and my recipes and all this type of stuff on Instagram. And they all had to align. Like there was like, you know, Gleichschaltung instantly about all sorts of things like Ukraine, you know, COVID, masks, everything. You you had to show fealty to to the thing. And um, I think, you know, that that kind of female hive mind has a certain, uh, an incredible place on the internet. And it's, it's you know, it's kind of, festering and metastasizing in ways that, you know, that trickle down into all these statistics, like the 20% gay. I mean, to be honest, that's probably all young women, I, not all, but yeah, mostly young women who are trying to, you know, attract whatever, some, some status points. To, uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's been, it's been very weird to see this as well. And people that I know who are just, you know, millennials and here around me and, you know, I keep bringing up the example of my friend who was really concerned about, you know, abortion rights in Alabama. And I'm like, I mean, I, I obviously care about stuff like this as well. I wouldn't have this podcast. I wouldn't be discussing, you know, American politics with people, but this woman, you know, she's not politically active here. She's not generally interested in any of this. Obviously it came from Instagram. Obviously she, whatever, follows a woman for her fitness program. And she, she was posting stories about the plight of women in Alabama. And, um, it is, it is crazy. Like I also know a girl here that I kind of grew up with who's, you know, raising her son gender neutral and stuff. And I know that this is from Instagram. This is not something that anyone in real life would have talked to her about or would have inspired her to do or would have even come up with. It's all nuts. So this woman's now painting her whatever toddler's fingernails blue because um, because it's the, the thing, the machine told her to. So it's, it's really, uh, really strange. And obviously if the programming changes on Instagram and people go back to normal, then yes, we will see a very, very quick uh, cascade back. So this actually brings me to what I think is one of the most interesting things about about Gen Z, right? Is that you know one of the the features of you know kind of the post, let's just say the 20th century, but probably like the post World War II reality more specifically is the idea of kind of like decades and generational culture, right? Like if I tell you like oh I, you know like I like 60s music, like you kind of know what that means, right? You have a, you have an image in your head. And, you know, being kind of like digital natives, you know, being kind of children of the, of the ashes, right, is that Zoomers don't really have a common culture at all in the sense that, you know, because of, you know, you know algorithms, right, because of uh, like mass proliferation of essentially like media sorting sites, almost everyone has, you know, their own kind of hyper unique culture. And when I say this, to, like, Alex, if I ask you, like, what was your song of 2004? You might have an answer to that. You know, like, oh, I remember listening to this, or, or this was like the album of that year. I, I speak with my parents and grandparents about this. But if you ask me, like, well, what was your song of you know 2018? It's like, well, 
the song that I listened to that came out like, I don't know, probably three or four years before that, you know, had a, had a fairly disappointing release. And I just listened to it because I was in college and I found it. Right. And, and that's a silly example. You know, it's something about you know, probably indulgent about my own life, but that is repeated on kind of every level. You know, when you see people saying like, oh, Zoomers don't know pop culture, they don't know anyone. And it's kind of true. But to be honest, I would argue that's almost an advantage because so much of, and there are, you know, thinkers in our spheres devoted to this, you know, kind of going back through what we consider like, you know, legacy media, uh, you know, films like, you know, uh, 12 Angry Men, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that are kind of classics, right? That before a certain era, everyone would have watched, right? Those aren't neutral. You know, they're burying things in your mind. And so much of kind of American civic religion over the past 50 years has been based on that, right? Like, oh, no, we can't do that because I'll be just like Nurse Pratchett from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Or, oh, I can't be like that. I don't want to be like the parents in Footloose or something like that. And even if it's not so explicitly stated, right, those, those memes, right, those, those mind viruses have a power to them. And so on one hand, it's like, yes, Zoomers tend to watch like brain dead internet content you know, of like, you know, people with, you know, brightly dyed hair on, on Twitch or whatever. The advantage to that is there's no content there or like there's a very little content there. And so one of the reasons, right, that people are like, oh, like, you know, young people, Gen Z is so easily radicalized, you know, like there'll be like Charlie Kirk one day, you know, posting, you know, uh, you know, like you know, national socialist slogans the next is effectively, right. And then I should say, I'm, I'm not a national socialist. I, there, there is something to be said for the fact that the, the ties to that previous culture, you know, kind of the stronger version of the culture we see in ashes today, there's none of that with young people because they haven't watched all the films. They haven't listened to all the music. You know, their, their entire frame of reference is essentially a couple of TikTok stars. And don't get me wrong, those TikTok stars are probably libtards, but that means the propaganda is not nearly as good. You know, it's yeah. not something you can really like organize your your life around. And so when I think of things like what are the the hallmark events, you know, of kind of liberal civic religion, you've got, you know, the Second World War, the 1960s, you know, there's some new stuff, obviously, with, with you know, with uh, George Floyd and, you know, the election protests and things like that. But when you talk to people, I kind of refer to it, this kind of referred to as boomer cons. Right, like American right wingers of a certain age, they're never going to go past a certain part. They're never going to go past a certain level. And I was talking to some Christian nationalists about this, you know, to be released on my show sometime. And they were basically saying, like, yeah, like it's really hard to talk to baby boomers because they they want to go back to when, you know, their Christian values were in such a strong position that they didn't have to exert them. You know, it was basically like, well. Yeah, it's okay if we let, you know, the Muslim swear his oath of office on the Quran because there's one of them, you know, and they can't ever go back to a point in which they can kind of confidently say, you know, like, no, this is wrong. This is the kind of country we are. It's not what they are. Whereas I, I look at Gen Z, right? And they're like, they have no attachment to that. They have no attachment to kind of liberal priors. And to be honest, right, is, is kind of, you know, whatever you want to call our sphere, right? The dissident sphere, the post-liberals, any, any of those terms, fine. I subscribe to all of them. That's an advantage because you're not fighting against 30, 40 years of, you know, baked in, you know, kind of like high quality propaganda. You know, all you've got to do is fight, you know, 10 years of a crippling screen addiction, which all right. Okay. That's not great. You know, 
but realistically, like what content is there to fight against? And so I don't know, maybe that's kind of the, the, the theme running through this is that I see on one hand, there are definite downsides to people my age. I won't deny that. You know, I've said it before, you know, they're, they're genuine, they're poor, uh, they're, they're, they're gay and they're, you know, there's, there's any number of invectives you can level. And I, all of those are correct. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point about you know, people just not being indoctrinated enough in the, or, or maybe not even not indoctrinated enough, but not, not trusting the propaganda as much just because the, the, the substrate of propaganda has really changed, you know, like the Helen Keller's not real type stuff. I mean. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I, I'll, I remember a very distinct memory from high school, right. Which has been you know a while now, but of making this kind of like very respectable kind of like never Trump Republican teacher, absolutely furious, you know, with this, this group of teenagers, because he went around the room and it's like, all right, like, well, which one of you, which one of you would take a dictator or which one of you wants an elected president? And the group is like, ah, whatever, like, we don't care. It's so like, we vote anyway, you know, throw it, throw a, throw a dictator in there. And then uh, kind of a similar thing around, you know, like a, a meme I remember, you know, very well from kind of a, an earlier era of the internet is, is the, like, well, Bush did 9-11. You know, like that's a, that's obviously on one hand, a, a joke to people of a certain age, but there's no sacredness to that idea of like, oh, you can't talk about 9-11. That was a, that was a national tragedy. That happened when I was in diapers, you know, like that, that, that again, and that's another one of those kind of, those, you know, sacred cows of, you know, a kind of previous order that is used as a stick to beat people, you know, and this is, this is kind of made fun of in a lot of, you know, ironically enough, liberal media of a certain time, right? Like, Joe, just say 9-11 and they can't challenge you. I would argue that there's certain things like that that are still, you know, baked into people. They're still legacy. And so I don't know, it's obviously, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk, you know, it's not like, oh, just sit back and relax. The Zoomers will save us, you know, but there is something kind of hopeful in that I see. Yeah, there's definitely something hopeful because they're rejecting the the propaganda of the you know the the, the previous regime, which is you know as we all know is is really um, subversive, not in a good way. Uh, the I think the, the problem that we have there is that there has n never been a regime on the face of the earth that did not have coherent propaganda, and I feel like the the internet itself is a is a decoherence uh, machine, and it's getting even more. You know, so I think that the problem that even even if we were to have like a Red Caesar figure, you would have to, you know, upend the Internet or put like an immense restrictions on it for it to not, you know, continue eroding the substrate of the the new and possibly necessary propaganda to to have a coherent and cohesive regime. So I, I wonder what that is, because, you know, I I'm not like a, a free speech absolutist just because in, in, in practical terms, it just does not work in, in reality. And then when you have something like the internet and then the internet itself is kind of morphing into something even more, um, you know, a hydra with even more heads now with all this kind of um, NLP and all sorts of stuff that that's, you know, popping up with uh, GPT number, whatever number we're currently on. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, I, I wonder what, our narrative is going to look like in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And yeah, that's, that's in a way for me, kind of an equivalent level of worry compared to, you know, the shitty and destructive propaganda we have now, but it's still kind of, I guess, lives on in the heart of the boomers. But once the boomers die out, there isn't even that, you know, there's nothing holding the, the ship together. 
No, definitely. And this is, this is something that I, I think about a lot and have you know no concrete answers on. It's like, well, what do you do with the internet? Because obviously on one hand, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Like you and I are, are talking to each other, you know, there's absolutely no way you and I ever would have met otherwise. But but the problem is, right, is that the internet isn't set up for the ideas you and I have to win. You know, it, it's set up for this kind of like endless deconstruction. And so I think that one of the mistakes that, shall we say, previous figures in our sphere have made is essentially the, the mistake of trying to win the internet, you know, trying to get the most clout, trying to have the strongest parasocial relationship, you know, reach into your audience's brain and provide them the most you know, the most, you know, like stimulation to their amygdala you you possibly can. And the problem is like, we can't win that game. We can't because there's just by nature, well, we could, but we'd have to become something different, you know, at a certain point. And, And I think that that anything that we do will require kind of a recognition of the, the kind of responsible role of, of the internet. And so I think that I'm you know, very much indebted to, right? Dave, the distributist, uses this, this great analogy of the Amish and a, and a phone, right? Like you can actually, this is, and for those who don't know, the Amish are kind of a, a, a separated, ultra-religious Protestant community in America. They only use technology very sparingly. So for instance, right, they, they don't use power tools. They don't, depending on the sect, right? And one of the things that is, you know, kind of they're, they're famous for is the way that they use phones. So for instance, right, you can't have a cell phone as, as you know, a, a member of an Amish community. You can't own a phone, but it can't be in your house. It has to be on a fence post sitting outside. And so the point is, right, well, that way, it's not a, if, if it's ringing, you can't hear it. You know, it's outside. If it's cold, you know, like you really have to care to use it. And so the point is, right, it's, it's a valuable tool. You can use it, but we're going to add a cost to it, right? It's not easy. It's not this kind of like, you know, you know, six inch square, you know, piece of silicon that you can slip in your pocket. And so I think, and I say this as a massive hypocrite, right? Like this is not something I'm, I'm particularly good at, right? That there will need to be a, you know, a kind of a reckoning with tech. And look, I say this shortly after the death of, you know, Ted Kaczynski to kind of date the recording. And I've taken a lot from, you know, from Uncle Ted, but I'm not... I'm not an eco-fascist, you know, I'm not someone who says we need to, you know, blow up the power grid, but I do think that if we view this, right, this genetic bottleneck is very much tied to, you know, these, these, you know, like horrible, like uh, algorithms of atomization, right. Then I think we have to be honest with the fact that we're probably not tough enough to kind of like, you know, grid it out, you know, like, oh, I, I can beat the algorithm, you know, it won't hijack my brain. Because I speak this as a, you know, a, a somewhat recovered Twitter addict, right? You know, like it got me. I think everyone, you know, kind of looks in the mirror and we're like, okay, yeah, I, I, I've been, I've been there once or twice, right? You know, doom scrolling. And so I think obviously like, okay, it's kind of vague to say we need to solve this problem. Okay, fair enough. I get that. I'm 24 years old. I don't know why you came to me for solutions, you know, a hypothetical listener. But I will say, right, that I think that any version of, of our movement that goes forward we'll have to kind of address this and we'll have to set what could be considered like the rules of engagement for technology. 
Yes. And I feel like there's, there's a, a strain of, of people trying to, to do that. I mean, they, they, they're kind of more tied into like localism, homesteading, you know, like back to the land type things, which is also, you know, seen a bit skeptically because it's not really a political solution. I, I get that as well. It's not like you can scale this and it's not like they, they'll leave you alone if you, you know, have a house in the country. And it's not like it's easy as well, because a lot of people are kind of, you know, LARPing agriculture, but, you know, they're, they're growing herbs in a planter outside the door and that's about it. And, you know, there's all sorts of complications, but I feel like the instinct to do that is very healthy. And I feel like uh, a, a lot of people who, um, yeah, who, who get interested in that space and kind of like Wendell Berry type thinking um, emerge a little bit wiser about technology. And I feel like that's an, an interesting avenue, especially for me to, uh, to explore, you know, thinkers who've, you know, like, like Kaczynski as well. I mean, he's kind of more of the, you know, celebrity outlier, but there's quite a lot of uh, thinking in that space. You know, you have people like Ivan Illich and, you know, just about technology itself and, you know, what exactly it is to be human and what technology should be used for and how, you know, it, it kind of usurps that relationship in time and it kind of becomes the dominant force. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is the, the other side of the accelerationist angle where, you know, the idea is to mind mindfully, you know, de de detach from technology or just kind of use it in, in practical ways. But I think that's, you know, that's, at least in my life has been really productive. And like, I, you know, like, like you have not, uh, I'm not a stranger to the Twitter addiction occasionally comes in waves. Um, but you know, I, I have really benefited from, from, from looking into this stuff and, and, you know, reading these people and, you know, it, it might, it might be, um, an, an interesting movement moving forward as well. So I think we actually, might have arrived at the answer to a question that we brought up earlier, right? Which is what is the, what is the off ramp for for women? And in a weird way, right? I, I I'm I am not a woman, but I know several of them. I, I see that there is this kind of like growing community of I don't know what you'd call them like like homestead adjacent women, right? People interested in kind of uh, you know functional medicine, people interested in kind of uh, you know, more traditional ways of like cooking and, and, you know, raising a family. And in a weird way, right. I think that the challenge is basically offering people an off ramp. You know, one of, one of, I think the biggest mistakes, uh, a rake, right. That the regime kind of left out in front of us is, I don't know if you remember this, this article, but it was the COVID amnesty article that came out, you know, a year or so ago. And essentially, that article basically said, like, I think it's time to have, you know, a COVID amnesty. You know, this was at a point at which the kind of COVID 1.0 narrative of like peak pandemic was fading away. Some things were, uh, some contradictions were being revealed. And so this author basically said, like, all right, like, hey, you know what? Like, we come out, don't shoot. And, you know, uh, the, the conservative half of the world basically lost their mind and said, like, no, we want you, you know, strung up on a lamppost. <laughs> and to me, I view that as essentially a massive own goal. Because what you've just shown them is anyone who is, you know, looking for a way out, looking for a, you know, a, essentially a chance to jump ship, basically just got held out over the mob and the mob's baying for blood. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, shoot, like, I, I, I guess I'm loyal again. You know, I, I don't have another option. And so I think that basically when, when your two options are basically like, like I'm going to, you know, 
uh, girl boss, you know, gaslight gatekeep, essentially like I'm going to, you know, achieve X, Y, Z career, you know, uh, freeze my eggs, uh, question mark, prosper, you know, and then this kind of, and it is very feminine and I don't particularly understand it. Right. But this kind of like more like crunchy, uh, kind of like more traditionally, at least bent, you know, like sphere of kind of like mommy bloggers and fitness influencers and kind of like people interested in, for instance, like you're making sourdough and bone broth. And I would argue that, okay, that's not necessarily our thing. You know, there isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation, but I think there is kind of a, there's a synergy there. And that synergy is being recognized by the regime, right? Like if you notice there are articles all the time, that's like, oh, is, is, you know, is nursing your baby far right? Is doing all of this far right? And I think that that's an attempt to essentially head that off the pass, right? Keep that client group of women, right? Keep them in the fold, you know, keep them from essentially looking at alternate, you know, avenues. And obviously, like I said, it's in its nascent form, but it is interesting. And it's something that I've, I've seen as well, kind of on the ground. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, um, there's always been a bit of a, a tension and a question about, you know, what to do with the women in, in right-wing politics. And, you know, different people have different answers. Some people haven't the answer of, you know, nothing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, um, the, the thing is like the women who are attracted to to right-wing politics have kind of carved out their their own spaces. And like you said, it's mostly in this kind of motherhood, uh, you know, kind of inspirational content where, you know, the, the cooking and the keeping of the, the home and maybe a, a little bit also religious, maybe more so than uh, some of the, some of the more kind of male content, lifestyle content, male lifestyle content on the right seems to be very much kind of, you know, bodybuilding focused, but the, the women are like more about, you know, motherhood and, and, you know, keeping the home and all this type of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to not notice that tension. And now that the space has become bigger, you know, it, it kind of, it, it, it keeps saying this, like, you know, w- once Andrew Tate became really big, there was a wave of people kind of sloshing in from the wider manosphere into mm-hmm. more kind of right-wing politics. And those people, you know, came with a lot of baggage and, you know, it really has become a bit more, just a bit tiring to be female on the internet and be kind of in, in right-wing spaces because there's always someone, you know, like, you know, back in the day I had like, you know, one or two reply guys who were very much kind of like mainline manosphere, you know, talking about the, I was talking about, I don't know, whatever <laughs> political, you know, Bertrand de Juvenel and the, he was like divorce rape and stuff like that in the comments. Now there's like 15 of them. So it's like, okay, you know, if, turn down the temperature guys. So yeah, it's, um, you know, I feel like uh, obviously a lot of this discourse is needed and a lot of these conversations uh, are important. We're important at that point, but now it's, it's kind of a bit overripe. It really has turned into conversational fodder into like these little crystallized in bits of information that people just like trot out at the, at the slightest impulse, like, you know, there's a picture of a woman dancing on a boat and everyone's just like, okay, this, you know, this woman is a, a, a total slut, you know, she needs to whatever, you know, get white Sharia and all this type of stuff. So yeah, it's, um, I know a lot of, a lot of women just kind of checked out after a while. Cause it's, you know, it, it just gets to you after a while. It's not, you know, I'm not going to be checking out except for, you know, the fact that I'm taking a break because I'm having a baby, but yeah, I'm, 
I've kind of grown a, a thick hide after so many years, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's becoming a little bit more acidic, the space I have to say for a lot of people. Well, I think part of that, right, is that there is uh, seemingly there's clout to be had. And anytime that there is clout, there is attention, that there's kind of like energy in a space, there, there becomes, there's an incentive for drama, you know, and that incentive kind of increases. And I am kind of famously averse to drama. I genuinely despise it. I try not to say anything bad about anyone publicly, right? Because basically it's a, it's a colossal waste of time. You know, the, the example I always use is basically like, like we as, as dissidents are fighting like the biggest, nastiest machine possible, right? Like this is, this is a world spanning empire of evil. And I, I genuinely believe that, right? And that, you know, it's sort of like the bishops at Constantinople, right? Like debating the gender of angels while the Turks are outside. And you're like, all right, guys, come on. Like, can you just stop for two seconds? And look, I get it. Some of that dialogue is, is, is useful, but uh, yeah, I think you're spot on in that. And I think that that's, again, one of the other things about the internet, that much like the internet has this built-in incentive to kind of maximize, you know, things like, uh, you know, parasocial relationship engagement that is built into the, to the structure of it. Right. And if you listen to those signals, right, if you bend towards the things that signal your personal advancement, right. Like zoomers bending towards the kind of like urge to be gay. Uh, if you, if you let that kind of get a hold in your mind, it'll turn you into something completely different. And I think that, that that drama urge is another part of that, right? That, that, that way that you know, and look, like I'm a smaller channel. I'd, this is a way that a lot of smaller channels become bigger channels, right? Is you start a beef with someone. Like I'm like, uh, you know, here's my, my three-hour video on why Alex Kashuta sucks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously that's a, that's, a, that's a hack. You know, that's a way to kind of get yourself higher up the status, the status ladder. And when there is more energy going into a sphere, like I would say there is in ours, you know, those comparative gaps between status become greater, right? When, when you become the most listened to people out of a group of a thousand versus out of a hundred thousand, right? That starts to become more quote unquote worth it. I don't know. And maybe that, that's how I look at it. I think that it's sort of inevitable. I, I think that one thing I would, and this is a, this is a way to kind of address this, this which is basically when someone does this, don't, forget it. You know, there are a lot of people who are essentially playing this game over and over again, you know, writing this kind of like controversy hype train and kind of are still part of polite society in our spheres. Mm -hmm. I think that needs to go away. Right. I think that uh, if you're kind of allied to the machine, you know, if you're playing into the incentives of the internet, even if you kind of mouth all of the right things about like democracy, bad marriage, good, it's like, okay, man, like, you're still fighting for them effectively. And, and that's sort of my, my opinion on the matter. I agree. I mean, I've, I've kept away from, from beef. I only had one minor beef that didn't really go anywhere with uh, James Lindsay at one point. You notice I, uh, I, I, okay. I can't, I, there are several people I don't allow myself to talk about on air and it's a, uh, it's, it's James Lindsay and Rod Dreher. For similar reasons, and I feel like me saying that indicates my uh, my broad position on those two men. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I have nothing to say about it. I feel like probably James Lindsay's blocked most people in, in, in the space because yeah, he just doesn't, at least, you know, a few years ago, two years ago, he didn't really want to engage with, uh, with people here. So, you know, that's the funny thing. That's actually how I found your podcast is I was a very passive listener of, of James Lindsay, just because I've, you know, always interested in his historiography, right. Intellectual history. I, I always thought he was kind of a, a cringe atheist, but his takedown of you was so hilariously bad. Like genuinely was the last episode I ever watched of James Lindsay. Like this is, this is trash. And I had never made the connection because I was a mold bug reader. And he was like, people like Alex Kashuda and Mencius Moldbug. And I was like, who and Mencius Moldbug? <laughs> and so I was like, uh, just put this in my phone. And so that's, that's I guess, funny enough. Uh, nice. another, another way down the rabbit hole. No, that's, that's really cool. I didn't even know that he addressed me by name. I know he just like, um, you know, said vague things about the murky, dark underbelly of the blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, that, uh, that it's dangerous and, you know, dragons be there and stuff like that to, to his audience. And I also got like a, a big influx of people at that point when, when he kind of disowned me because people were just curious. And they first, they first came to, to tell me that I'm bad and that I'm an SJW because they probably thought that, you know, that James Lindsay would only be against me if I was too, too on the left and stuff like that. And then I would just kind of, you know, link them to, to stuff I wrote or, you know, interviews and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> James Lindsay doesn't like me because I'm too right wing. And then they were like, oh, okay. And then, yeah, I got quite a, quite a few Lindsayites uh, convert to my, uh, to my minor cult. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's strange. I don't know. I, I used to be kind of interested in this stuff way back in the day. But to be honest, I really wasn't that interested in the whole kind of cynical theories thing. It just feels like, uh, you know, just, just the, the most perfect kind of platonic form of the, the, the virus that, uh, that ate liberalism type narrative, which I really don't believe because I'm, you know, into mold bug and I really think it's, it's kind of baked in. So from that point on, we were, you know, we were kind of at odds. I just, I just don't buy his core premise at all in, in any way. So I don't think liberalism has a yeast infection. I think liberalism is the yeast infection. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a strange way to, yeah, never, never have anything to well, talk about. With James I, I think that that's probably a, a good way to wrap up my opinions <laughs> on my, my personal favorite uh, new atheist and Kung Fu master. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, I think that that is, and I think it's a good way to uh, wrap up. Uh, I think the, the main part of our show before the last question, the question of the show, the question everyone gets, um, about a subversive thinker that you think might be underrated and that people might be wise to, to check out. So the, the eagle eyed, you know, viewers may have, have noticed, right. My, my pseudonym, uh, Jay Burton, I actually stole that, uh, from a novel written by Robert Penn Warren called all the King's men. And it's a truly amazing uh, American modern novel uh, starring uh, Jack Burton uh, about a, a man who is thoroughly alienated himself from his patrimony, from his culture, from his, his friends and family in a pursuit of political power and how over the course of the story, he realigns himself with his, his family and with his, his culture at the same time in kind of a chiasmus as a character based off of, uh, based off of, you know, a famous, you know, uh, Louisiana governor named Willie Stark in the book kind of goes to the opposite, right? We see a character who starts off as this kind of like hardworking, you know, uh, like 
honest you know, local politician who turns essentially into a you know, kind of a monster by the end of it. And these two men are kind of compared and contrasted against each other. And so I think that you know, one of the questions that we're in is basically like, well, how do we relate to our ancestors? You know, both our ancestors who we consider, you know, honorable, you know, the, worthy of our praise and also our ancestors who did things wrong, right? Who, who led us to this situation. And how do you relate to people that you owe fealty to, that you owe respect to, but who may have, who may have done something wrong? And so that's why All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, and he's one of the Southern agrarians, which were a series of writers from kind of the similar era. All of them are well worth your time. But I would recommend that novel, All the King's Men. It's a, you know, it's American classic. And uh, for, for students of, of political theory, there's something in there for people who just love prose. He's a, a truly talented writer. And then also there's a little part of it that's like, oh, wait, I, I see myself in Jack Burton. And uh, I think that that would, uh, that would benefit your, your audience. Excellent. Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely recommendation. I, I was not aware of the, the writer or the novel. So yeah, finally I feel like I'm more clued in into the, the deep lore of the Jay Burden show, which you all please should check out because it is, uh, yeah, just a, a wonderful collection of people that you and I, I haven't heard of and, and I'm happy to, to have listened to on the, on the Jay Burden show. And yeah, um, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. It was, I really appreciate the chance to speak with you and I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, is there any other thing that you'd like people to check out maybe outside of the show? Uh, no. So obviously, you know, there's, there's the, you know, the Jay Burton show, which is my, uh, podcast. The format will be uh, very familiar to listeners of uh, subversive, uh, because I, I borrowed it. And, uh, <laughs> essentially if I could offer anything, it's that I have done a series of interviews uh, with a, a dear friend of mine, uh, George Bagby. He is the person who actually handed me my first ever copy of All the King's Men. He's incredibly influential to me. And he and I have done a series of conversations together. Our most recent one, as of the time of recording, was essentially a, a, an in-depth dive into American slavery. We've done one on kind of the history of Protestantism in the US and how that relates to kind of current you know, divisions. And then we've also done several on marriage in the family. Right, so these were recorded, you know, throughout my engagement and kind of preparing me, you know, for my own marriage. But just kind of a series of me and you know one of my best friends, you know, speaking. And one of the best things about George Bagby is you can only find him on my channel. So if I recommend him, right, you have to come to me. And so that that's the content I would recommend people start off with. Obviously, I've done a, a series of episodes with you know Thomas Seven Seven Seven, who's another you know dear friend of mine. And uh, yeah, I would invite you guys to just you know check over you know my work. It's you know, available both as a video show and then an audio one as well. And uh, again, Alex, thank you so much for, for giving me the chance to come on. I, I really appreciated it. Yes. Thank you for coming on. Cheers.